Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called super stocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. For our guest today, we got Michael who goes by the name Hidden Small Caps on Twitter. He has turned $6,000 to an astonishing amount of $3.6 million from 2009 to 2015. So we are also a founder of a company called Das Riser. We are based in the United States and we got to know each other for quite some time. So I believe it has been nearly two years. So nice to have you here and we just want to learn a bit more from your stories. Let us just kick off a bit of things, right? Can you tell us a bit of your background, how you got started and what really got you into investing? I got started back when I was about 13. Um, my dad used to get these, uh, this, is, this is before the internet. So uh, he used to get these CD-ROMs sent to him and they had a list of every stock along with the chart of the week. Well, really up to a year chart for every stock in the market. And him and I used to just kind of go through it. I think he was just getting into investing himself and we were just kind of learning. So we would flip through every chart and just kind of got me hooked into, into investing. And so after that, I didn't really invest until I think the first stock I ever bought was a stock called Applebee's, which is a, a restaurant chain in the United States. That one, the day after I bought it, went down 25% on an earnings report. And I had wow. no idea what that even meant, but that kind of you know, got me interested in it and uh, learning why a stock, you know, why my investment would move that much. And I kind of followed the, the market on and off um, for several years. I went to college a few years after that. And I went to college for accounting, mainly because I wanted to be in business and I wanted to understand the language of business, which is accounting. And uh, I, I, did not, I did not buy a stock again until 1999. That was the first stock that I bought right at the, the, heart, the height of the, the dot-com bubble. That stock actually went up like six-fold within a couple months, and then the, the market peaked and crashed. And I think I got out of it for a small gain, but I didn't really, after that point, invest until 2003. I was in the middle of starting up two, um, two web businesses at the time. And I was running and I had a full-time job. So I was doing that on the side. And, but during that time, I was reading as much as I could about the market. And I would, I would stay, I would stay at work a little bit late and I would print off 10 Ks of companies that I was interested in. And I would read them on the way to and from work every day, just kind of absorbing as much information as I could. Um, and then in 2003, I started investing just a little bit. I had, had $3,000 um, that I put into the market. And I turned that into, I think it was around 40,000 by 2005 or six. 
And then I moved to San Diego. I was living in Boston at the time. I moved to San Diego. And one of the, one of the web businesses that I was, uh, that I was running on the side, I, I tried giving it a go full time. Took that money out and uh, lived off of that for a little while. Kind of ran out of that money. And, uh, and then I had another uh, full-time job that I was working remotely, actually, from San Diego. It was based out of Boston. And this brought me to about 2008, 2009. I had about $8,000 in my IRA at the time. And that's when you know, the, the, the bull market started. At that time, even though I hadn't invested a lot, I mean, I had some success, but it was, it was um, just a learning process, constantly learning, um, understanding everything about technicals and fundamentals of, of stocks. And that's kind of, I, I used everything that I learned for the past 10 years leading up to that to kind of formulate like a strategy. And you were asking, you know, what, like what my investment philosophy is. And it's really, um, it's centered, I would say around four different things. Uh, I try to find stocks that have near-term catalysts. Generally speaking, that would be, you know, identifying a catalyst in relation to the size of the company. And, and I, I generally focus on three different kinds of companies, which I can talk about later. So, so generally, I want a near-term catalyst. I want the story to be real easy to understand. Because yep. I'm always thinking about, like, if other investors are going to get involved in a stock, they generally don't put a lot of time into, into learning about the companies. And so the easier it is to understand, the easier it is to kind of sell that story to other investors and to get them into it. So that's, I'm always kind of, I don't want to get involved with complicated companies and stocks. It's just, it's too much of a headache. And you, and I feel like you don't have a, a full like grasp of everything and your conviction level isn't as high as it could be. And then I, I like, I, I, I like buying stocks. Generally, a lot of the stocks that I've, I've found success in are, uh, they're going through turnarounds. And that's usually a stock that's uh, like the, the chart typically is going through a downturn and coming out of the downturn and starting to go back up. And I'll always look for stocks that are pulling back near support or have pulled back after initially making that first thrust up and on on the technical side of stuff uh there's nothing specific i've just you know after looking at charts for so long i have a general sense for when things are about to kind of break out of those those basing patterns and then i think that's pretty much it the other thing is you know i, I generally try to I, i've been honing the strategy of like scaling out of stocks as they go up i i don't I'm not a buy and hold person, so I will try to, you know, if, if it starts to run, let's say 25% in a short period of time, I'll start scaling out of it. And then, but I may trade in and out of that stock multiple times over a year or two. So that's really my philosophy, I would say. Oh, that's really incredible. That's a lot of information down there. And I just want to dig a little bit deeper because you mentioned about the kind of spots where you're playing at you know, in is actually sort of turnarounds, if I get you correctly, right? Like broken IPOs and you have this huge rise after that. Could you share with us, you have any recent examples and what are some indicators you look to actually solidify the TCs for you to give you that confidence to say, hey, this is something that is really turning around right now. So I don't only focus on turnaround stocks. I was actually looking at, you know, I had or after we talked about doing this podcast, I, I wanted to look back and see, you know, which ones made the best gains on. And, and generally, it's, it's, it's three categories. It's usually turnaround stocks, momentum stocks. So that'll be uh, a COVID-related stock that may have a short-term catalyst. And then growth stocks like a, yeah. a Shopify or a DraftKings or something like that. 
but for the turnarounds, it's, it's my strategy is very specific. And so I, I, I generally will use the stock screener for that. So I'll use Finviz to identify something that's been going through a downturn for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And I generally am trying to find a stock that is just peaking out above its 50 day or 200 day moving average. Mm-hmm. I'll look for both of those. And then when I come up with that list, I, um, I just go one by one on um, Guru Focus, which is, uh, I don't know, if you're familiar with that, but it's, they just have financial statements going back 15 years on every stock. So I'll go into Guru Focus and just plug in each, each company. And what I'm looking for on that is, is the balance sheet, do they have a decent amount of cash uh, relative to the cash burn? Are they going to run out of capital quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, these stocks are, are dog shit. So, <laughs> um, so you have to take, you have to take the, the skeptical point of view of I'm looking at a dog shit company and there's 99% chance that this company has nothing going for it. So I'll just kind of quickly go through that list. And every once in a while, you'll see a, a company that has sales ticking up. Um, they're coming closer to break even. They may have just broken even on, on the latest quarter. And that's, um, that's what gets me excited for like a, something that may potentially have a sustainable turnaround. And then from that point, just digging into the 10K, recent news, result, uh, news releases and understanding more about the business. And uh, if there's any near-term catalysts that might propel the, the stock to go continue to go higher. Um, but if, it, if, if none of those appear, which generally speaking on a turnaround, you, the reason I look at the chart is because the chart almost always will tell the story before the financials tell the story. So in, in the instance, like on a pack bio, which is a, a recent one that I, I invested in, if you look at the financials, they, look, they don't look good. But on those, you know, if I generally will look for some sort of indicator on the chart, whether it's a spike in volume and and the and the stock is it just shoots right over the 200-day moving average, then I'll start looking at like, okay, what's the recent news on this? Is it uh, in an industry that's going through a, a turnaround, like solar was um, in 2017, and is it a catalyst that's going to last? So for Pack Bio, that one specifically, it was. Uh, they they just broke up a merger agreement with Illumina, and I I've, I've been in the genomic space uh, quite a bit lately, which we've talked about before. But um, I I just have I I have a belief that the genomic space is uh, going through kind of a a, a long term bull market because of uh, advances in in medicine and um, and I think so you know sequencing is going to be a, a general thing that you do at every doctor visit every year, and so I was already familiar with that space. And, and if I looked at Illumina, Illumina's like, at the time, it was 70 times bigger than PacBio. And as I started digging in more and more, I started realizing that like, they're actually looking like they're going to be taking market share from them. Um, so on that, you, you know, that was, that's, you're not going to pick that up in the financial statements. That's specifically looking at the chart, seeing that um, the chart's starting to bottom out and turn around. And in that case, I think they had, they did an equity raise and the stock ripped like 20%, which is pretty unusual. Um, And so that it was like, oh, okay. So this is like, there's institutional buying behind this. So those, that's my strategy on turnarounds. 
Actually, that's very interesting because for the longest time, I, I've been a growth investor, but you know, I think investors like us, we are always constantly curious about the world, about what's happening, uh, especially, you know, a lot of details get captured into the price volume, right? Like you see the volume spike that kind of like tells you something is coming ahead. And, and, I, and I like that a lot because what I've experienced, you know, when I started investing, I kind of assume that if I could screen well, that's going to be the alpha, that's going to be my returns. But I found that that's not so true because if you could screen, I could screen, then where's the age, right? The age has to be something different. Maybe a, right. a perception, maybe it's a certain informational age as well. So, so while listening to you, I also thought about a conversation I had with a friend lately. And I think in the world, we have been talking about the L-shaped recovery or V-shaped recovery, but what we are seeing really in, in the post, I mean, currently we're in a COVID situation, right? Is this k-shaped recovery meaning you know there's some industries that do really well like e-commerce like online gambling right this is kind of like the, the k that's above sure. and the below yeah. is all your industries that unfortunately got disrupted really heavily so in a way i believe that wealth does not get destroyed but wealth gets transferred from different industries to different industries right so maybe from your perspective you know with your years of experience investing and maybe recently with the COVID 19 have you started to think about, you know, how has your investment strategy changed or would you say that what industries do you favor the most right now and what are the industries that you absolutely avoid? This year, this year has been an interesting year. Um, for me personally, I, I've, I, if I look at my biggest winners this year, it's, it's generally, it's just in two, in two categories. It's in online gambling and genomics. And those you know, again, they're centered around, well, with, with online gambling, it's a specific catalyst. And, and I only wanted to focus on really two or three big, uh, big players within that space. And for me, it was Penn and DraftKings. That was, uh, that's something that's kind of not going to get affected by COVID whatsoever. In fact, I mean, obviously, online gambling, it's benefiting from it. And then, for genomics, it was more just this thesis that I had that it was uh, it was more of a, a long term bull market that we're going to go in through. And I also feel like healthcare is a little bit. It's almost like a, it's what's going to get us out of this. So I think people are potentially placing more emphasis on healthcare in general than maybe in, in, in prior period. So like that's that was my whole thought process this year was focusing on stuff that that wasn't in the in the fire zone. Um, and that's, that's actually something that, like, I've just learned from experience when you're going through a downturn, you, you want to stay as far away from the, the industries that are in like the middle of like the, the target range, you know, that are getting blasted out. So like in 2016, 2015, 16, energy was getting destroyed. The price of oil dropped from, I think it was hundred down to 25. And I, I made the mistake back then of focusing on Freeport Mac and other stocks that were uh, within that space instead of focusing on innovation, innovative type companies. And I, I made it a point to myself that, and, and I also learned that in the, in the 2009 downturn. Um, I don't know why I, I forgot about it, that, that lesson in 2016, but I, I, I told myself coming into this year and, and once I saw that COVID became an issue and I, and I started seeing it with my, my own suppliers um, for my, my business. So I, I had a little bit of a head start on it and I saw when it started happening, I started just going to cash and everything. And I said, you know, when we hit a, a spot where it's just everybody's throwing everything out, I want to focus on the, the stocks that are innovative, you know, the ones that 
not the ones that are like the hotels or, or the other ones that are in the blast zone, but the ones that are actually innovating and, and have a chance to, to capture market share in this, in this downturn. You know, I just forgot to ask you a question, right? Because I, I know you, you run your own business, you have a family, but I can't help to notice that you're also very frequent on Twitter. And in fact, I think a lot of great conversations that happen on Twitter, right? So I also think about what you mentioned to me. Sometimes when you're running a business, you see the early warning signs, which can be really helpful, especially when you're dealing with suppliers that are overseas as well. So in this case, I, I believe your suppliers are from China, right? They are, yeah. China and India. So one question that I'd like to ask, maybe for the benefit of the other listeners is, do you have any advice or how do you structure your lives around such that you have ample time to do research? Because the work that we do as investors is, is could be quite demanding, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's challenging. <laughs> and especially, especially now with we're doing homeschooling for our kids. Um, so, and I was just, I was explaining to you, I have, I have an office space that I rent out, but the company that I rented that I rent from, they went out of business. And so the internet went out and I'm having internet issues and constantly going back and forth between there and here. It creates, uh, it creates a lot of issues for structure. There's really, it's, it's all over the place for us, but, but generally speaking, I, I don't have, I don't have like a set pattern every day. I, I am, you know, watching the market pretty much throughout the day when it opens, um, you know, and just kind of flipping back and forth between work and that, my, my business and that. But I don't have like structure. When, when you own your own business, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, you, you just have to drop stuff for customer issues or, or whatever may come up. And I, I try to keep my investing side of things somewhat organized with, with, you know, like when I do research on specific stocks and stuff, you know, I have, I have my own set folders on my computer and I'm dumping all stuff in there and then I'll go back to it later. And, and I have like a, a note list to, to remind myself to go after um, ideas that people bring up or things that I've come across. But I think more than anything, you just need to have the passion to, to want to learn and to, um, and to, to get better at it. So, so it's interesting because you mentioned about passion and so a story of mine was that you know, back in school, I, I was naturally a very competitive person in, in business, in studies as well. But there's someone in class that seemed to always, you know, win me in terms of grades, in terms of anything else, right? And I got really frustrated and I went to my lecturer and say, you know, how can I get better grades? And he said something which is quite contrarian. He said, Calvin, if this is a space that you're not winning, obviously it means that you're not so good. <laughs> and I got angry about that, right? And, and he said, you know, why don't you play in a field that no one is playing at? That means at your age, how many people are actually investors? Not a lot, you know. So why don't you just take what you learn in school and apply in, in the stock market? And, and he gave me a suggestion, gave me a book, uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, started investing, and that's how I got my passion. And passion is, is really hard, right? But maybe uh, could you share with us, maybe deep down, like your passion for investing, how, how did it come about? Like, I mean, you mentioned about your background story, looking at charts. But is there something more like what gives you that satisfaction? Well, yeah, I think honestly, I think my my initial interest in investing probably when I was growing up, we we had almost no money in my family, and there were just a couple instances growing up where like I had a couple a couple times where it was striking that we had no money, and I think I always kind of wanted to to have like a better lot in life, and so. For me, it was just that interest in, in being able to make money 
in in ways other than just working and i don't know i, I don't know where that passion initially sparked from but um you know the the interest in, in uh now it's just kind of like trying to trying to outperform the market and trying to uh just it's kind of like a game at this point you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know it just for, for me like i a lot of the things that I that I taught myself over the years, I, I don't have to reteach myself. Like the learning the fun, the fundamentals of a business or looking at the charts, it's it's kind of more of a repetitive thing, and it's the joy of like minimizing mistakes and and really honing honing uh, your your profits and losses and and um, just getting a little bit better at the little things because I already have a passion for it. I, I, I enjoy like, it's, it's, it's basically mental chess, like trying to, you know, trying to find winners and, and get ahead of uh, movements. It's kind of like a, a video game in a way. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I realized, I mean, from you is that you're, you're self-made, you're self-taught. And the fact that you have gotten to a stage where I honestly feel that you're, you're quite successful because the way I, I look at the, the analysis that you put out and obviously the wealth that you have created for yourself is, is tremendous, right? So why don't we talk through the process on how you eventually achieve your first million and what are some of the biggest learning lessons from there? I, I generally am in and out of stuff over a couple month period, couple weeks, even sometimes if it moves really fast a couple of days, but uh, generally I'm not a buy and hold person. So um, it's all about compounding your wins. And so the time from when I started in 2009 to when I crossed the million mark was probably, it was probably four years, I think, but it was just, you know, compounding your wins and, uh, and then, you know, learning from your mistakes. So for me, I, you know, there's a bunch of mistakes that I had that I've, I've kind of like the, the idea of when you come out of a downturn, only focusing on innovative companies, um, companies that are going under significant industry change that's for the good. You know, I've gotten caught in downturns where, where you know, like, like the Freeport Mac idea in 2016, yep. I, I missed some of the biggest winners coming out of there because of that. And so, so yeah, just, uh, just after the point where I hit that, that million, it was like, I was, I was focused, I was putting too much money into, into individual uh, positions. Um, so learning how to position size things correctly, because I still, I still have a concentrated holding of, of companies. Um, I just, I believe in like really researching each position in depth, but yeah, really minimizing your losses is, is key. Like for me, I think the biggest difference between like an average investor, there's a couple between like the average investor and somebody who can outperform is, is not having strategies during market downturns, not paying attention to kind of what's going on in the world and saying, oh, you know, I need to like, for me, there's really like four things market wise that tell me I need to start being cautious. And it's, it's usually like Fed related, if the Fed's too tight, if interest rates start rising, if the S&P 500 starts going below the 200 day moving average. And if, you know, at the same point, uh, if the VIX starts rising, uh, that's, and then it, it, that coupled with what's going on in the world, um, that is, is a big difference maker between, you know, like 
just being an average investor. And then, you know, if, if you're able to avoid some of that downturn, if you're more of a trader, if you're able to avoid that, it can really set you up for um, success coming out of the downturn because you're, you're mentally ready, you know, you're mentally aggressive and you're, um, and you're looking for opportunities as opposed to, you know, just wallowing in misery. <laughs> and then, you know, just being, being flexible for me, like I learned, you know, I'm not, always going to be right. I mean, I, in the biggest years that I've had, I've been, if I go and look at how many stocks I've made money on and how many stocks I've lost on, it's almost 50-50, but it's, it's cutting your losses quickly, being f- flexible and, and, and willing to say like, you know, this just isn't working out. If there's something, the market knows that I don't know and, I'm, and I need to cut my losses. And I, I generally try to keep my losses at 10% or less not not adding to your losses adding to your winners just general stuff that people say over and over but it it really is true right so i i guess from what i've learned from you is really i think when it comes to investing at the end of the day is to ask ourselves constantly what are we missing what does the market knows that we do not know right and and what I've learned from you is something really unique that i find that it's going to be very available for the listeners even for myself because at the end of the day, I think when it comes to investing, when it comes to you know achieving up performance, it's, it's, it's just math, right? Because when it comes to downturn, I mean, the math kind of worked against us when it comes to losses, right? Because if you drop 50%, it kind of require, require 100% increase to kind of get back to where you are. So every drop that, you, that we take as investors would obviously be extremely painful, right? And it kind of destroys the compounding process, right? So actually, yeah. a, a story of mine was that I started out as a concentrated investor. Today, I still still am. But there was one position which I had a big allocation and it, it, it kind of went in the wrong direction. And that kind of took almost two years of my compounding process. You know, it kind of like pushed me back by two years. Right. And that was extremely painful. But I guess today, I'm not as concentrated as before. But I feel that, you know, the math of having a losses there, it kind of destroys the whole compounding process. So, so let us maybe dive in a little bit deeper on the management teams, right? Because if you look at most brokerage reports out there, they don't talk much about management teams. And I feel that management teams, the connection, the people tends to be underrated aspects of analyzing a company. People don't analyze them enough. So I'd like to find out from you, Michael, like how do you analyze management teams? And, you know, obviously to me, it seems like you got a good knack of picking up facts and stitching them together. And, and the way sometimes you build that kind of connection, it seems to be really incredible. And when I look at your tweets, I see how you link things up. It's just impressive, right? How do you Thanks. do this competence? And is it sort of pe- uh, pattern recognition over the years? <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, management team doesn't necessarily, I mean, it comes into the equation. It's not as big of a deal for me. If So like, like if I go back to the three categories of stocks that I, I generally focus on, which would be turnarounds, momentum stocks, or, or growth stocks. Um, growth stocks, I think it's important to have a founder-led team. I think that I think that's I, I understand uh, why people always look at that, and I, it makes sense to me. Um, you just have a vested interest in the outcome of the business. But for growth stocks in general, I I I just try to look at I, I try to focus on the the dominant market share leader in that space, and it's generally a product that I use. Like I if I understand. You know, if I'm using Shopify or Amazon or Netflix or DraftKings on a daily basis, then I understand that product way better than any other, you know, SaaS company that I really don't understand. So I don't really look at management team that much. I mean, yeah, 
again, in that category, I, I do like to see the, the, the founding team members uh, still part of the management team. I think that's a very important. But for like turnaround stocks, generally, there's, they often bring new CEOs into the mix. And on those, it's, you know, I do actually look at like if they've had prior success, um, that's, that's a, a pretty big factor. So like one of my biggest winners was Nautilus coming out of uh, 2012, which again, they're doing the same turnaround again this year. But in 2012, they brought in a, um, they brought in a new management team maybe a couple of years before that. And they were going through another, um, another crazy downturn and coming out of that downturn and um, they had prior success with other, uh, other companies within similar kind of industry. Um, so yeah, I'll look, I'll look at that, but it's, if, if it's, uh, if it's a big enough catalyst within the, within the industry that they're operating in, then that turnaround story will have legs. I think almost regardless of the, the management team pack bio is actually a good example. They, they brought in a new, uh, a new manager from Illumina who's like the biggest company within the industry. Um, so, and, and he's what looks like a good manager, but you don't really know. He's never had a CEO position. So yeah, so getting back to that, management team's not a huge thing for me. It's just not something, and, and it may be more because of my holding period is uh, typically under a year. Wow, okay, that, that's interesting. Let's say we were to think about your portfolio because I, I think earlier on you mentioned that you typically don't hold your stocks for years, maybe, you have some core positions, but you also have some trading positions as well. You know, I, what, what I realized, Michael, is that when it comes to investing, while we are growing up, there's a lot of conventional rules to say, hey, your portfolio don't have it, don't size it more than 15% because that could be extremely risky. But as I go about, you know, investing and acquiring my own skills, my own experience, my own pattern recognition in the market, I realized that, you know, for me to outperform in the market, I may have to break the conventional rules because they say first for you to break the rules, you have to master them first. In your own investing right. career, were there some rules that you have broken and and you have gotten huge successes in, in those areas. And while we are talking about a success as well, if you could just drop a few failure points, uh, that could be extremely helpful. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's total bullshit <laughs> to the fifteen percent rule. I mean, unless if you well, it depends what your what your goal is with with investing. Do you want do you want to just you know just outperform the market, but not have you know tremendous poten potential for tremendous gains? Um, but you just want consistent, you know, consistent returns. It really comes down to, I think, your, your own psychology. If, uh, and psychology plays a huge, a huge role in investing. Like if, if you're willing to take risks and you can live with downturns, then you have to, and, and if you really want to outperform, you have to concentrate your portfolio. There's no way you can outperform the market by you know, having 50 different stocks and you don't even really understand what's going on in them. I just, I don't subscribe to that idea at all. However, uh, you know, I, I've learned over time, like going all in on one stock is probably a little bit too much. Um, unless if you really have a lot of conviction and you're willing to hold through downturns and stuff, but you have to, you have to be mentally prepared for, for significant swings. Um, so generally, I mean, you know, I'll have positions where I have a third of my portfolio or something in there, but I'm trading around it. So I may not have that for a very long period of time and I'll probably trim it down to, you know, a smaller position 
but I'm okay with having swings in my in my uh, portfolio just because I want to I want to have significant outperformance, you know. So I don't subscribe to any of those like conventional ways of thinking, and I think that's important if uh, if you want to be good at anything in life, you, you really have to kind of think outside the box. Yeah. So maybe for you, um, are there some unconventional strategies that you have that may kind of scare normal investors, but to you, it's perfectly fine because you really understood the risk, you understood the strategy? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, just going back to portfolio holdings, for me, I, I, don't, I don't mind concentrating stuff, but I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not buying and holding stuff. So I may, there may be stocks that I'll, I'll trade in and out of over the course of a couple of years, but um, I'm generally trying to catch them uh, during the upturns. And then once, once the rally starts petering out, then I'll look to lighten up and, and look for other ideas. So yeah, I, I think concentration's extremely important. If you if your goal is to you know take some additional risk and and outperform, yeah, well that's pretty useful, right? Because a lot of times concentration is something that people is very worried about, and I think you should only be fearful about concentration when you do not have a clue of what you're doing. Then obviously, yeah, you know you yeah. should just buy a you know Vanguard. S&P 500 kind of like ETF thing. So, you know, you have shared a lot of stuff, which I think obviously I'm learning from you. So one thing I'd like to find out from you, because I believe when we are successful in life, there are definitely factors that cause us to be successful. There are maybe certain role models that have made us successful. And I also know that you are mostly self-taught, you're self-learned as well. If you could share what are some resources or things that you find it extremely helpful to get the listeners started or to get them you know, to perform better in the stock market. And is there any particular person role model that you actually learn from or try to mimic some of their strategies? It's funny that you brought up the Peter Lynch book. That was the first book I ever read on investing wow. as well. And I just, I love the way that he speaks about categories of stocks and just really kind of dumbing things down for people and, and making it simple. Because um, it really is, it should be as simple as, as, as you, you can possibly make it. You know, it, it shouldn't be that complicated. There's, there's so much noise out there. And I think for me, I use Twitter and StockTwits as just trying to find a couple investors or, or people that I think are, are good thinkers and, um, and trying to use that as a, an idea generation tool. So, um, you know, there's, there's people on, on Twitter and, and stock twits that I follow, um, that I've gotten ideas from, sorry, there's something flying around here that I've gotten ideas from. And I, I don't understand why some people follow like 5,000 people on each platform, because there's no way you're going to be able to, I mean, I guess if you're just getting like crap, that's like in your stream constantly, maybe you pick up one thing that you wouldn't see normally for me, it's, uh, I've always tried to focus on like a, a small list of people that I've, that I see have had success and that, you know, I can bounce ideas off of. I, I think that's really important. Um, creating a, a filter, you know, a noise filter and, and um, really focusing on people that are, you know, just really focused on what it is that you're, that you're interested in, whether it's stocks or business or, you know, politics or whatever it is. Um, I think it's important to just to stay focused on on that specific category. And and for me, Twitter and, and Twits is they're pretty good resources. So I guess what I'm learning from you, listening from you as well, is at the end of the day, quality matters more than quantity, right? And I do agree with you, which is why I was just laughing at the back of my mind because at the end of the day, 
you know, you could be following so many people, you just do not know what you are getting, right? And sometimes, yeah. you know, especially I understand because you're running a business, I'm running a business as well. We may have this kind of thing called the information overload and we don't want to do that. We want to categorize information really nicely. And so when you have too much information, it really, really dilutes the focus and attention. Yeah. So I know that you're eventually creating and might, might be thinking of creating a investor kind of platform information site. Could you talk a little bit more about it to us? Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm in the middle of developing it. I, I still haven't chosen a name. Maybe we, maybe we can choose it right here. <laughs> I, I, I spend like probably a couple hours a week brainstorming a, a name for, for the business and I still haven't come up with a good one yet. But um, yeah, it's generally good. It, it's going to be, um, I'm trying to create like a, a platform that, uh, that will bring together people that are experienced within the investing world um, and, and bringing them in with investors um, and kind of like a learning platform. Um, so like online tutorials and uh, online courses and stuff like that. Mm. And, um, and then aggregating podcasts and newsletters and stuff from other people, just kind of creating like a platform. Um, so I'm actually in the, in the process of developing, um, developing that with a, a developer right now. And I just want to, I want to create something that's a, a useful tool um, for people that are maybe starting out or, or even people that are experienced that have a resource um, that they can go to to learn about specific industries or, or um, topics within industries. So like for, within genomics, like understanding what long read versus short read sequencing is. Like most people don't have the time to learn that, but I would like to have a resource for people to go to that, um, that they can rely on. Um, so I don't, I, I don't really have a business plan on it. It was more just out of self desire to have something there. Um, I don't know if it's gonna be free or, or if I'm gonna charge for it, but um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. Um, and I'm hoping to get, uh, like people like yourself who may have created courses or um, even professors or, uh, you know, all, all kinds of people within the investment community um, onto the platform and share ideas. And also, you know, they can, they can introduce themselves to people and their, and the business that they're running or whatever it is that they're doing. Actually, I find that that's very exciting. I think uh, one of the common traits that I see in a lot of investors who have gotten uh, what they need in life, they tend to want to give it back. And I think that the sounds of it is amazing. And I, and I know that and I understand that it will require a lot of work. And, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I really believe that once the product is out, I'll be happy to pay, right? Because the idea about, I think, I, I do not know, but from where I come from, maybe sometimes people don't like to pay for stuff, especially in China, right? Everything is sort of, you want to get it free, just download illegally or all that kind of stuff. But the way yeah. I look at it is that, you know, all of us in life, we just have 24 hours, honestly, right? Yeah. And we, we, we got to learn how to work smart. And that's how we leverage off each other, like on Twitter, on, on more yeah. leaflets. And you see, if your time is, I mean, if you're paying like 100 bucks, 60 bucks, and you get that one piece of information that could make you like 20%, 30%, it, it pays for itself very, very right. quickly, right? So it's, it's kind of like a no-brainer uh, to me, right? So um, I, I think that's really something uh, quite amazing. So... You know, as I thought about you wanting to create this for investors globally to learn more, to leverage off each other's um, knowledge, have you ever thought about like what's the next thing for you, like in terms of 
do you want your kids to be investors as well? Have you started teaching them investing? And if, and if you have, what are some ways you kind of like teach them, expose them to the world of business? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I always try to, I always try to throw little tidbits about business and stuff at my kids. And my, my wife is like, they're too young. Don't, you know, <laughs> so I, I'm probably pushing it on them too much. Um, which is, <laughs> I don't know. It is what it is. But anyways, I, I, part of the reason I, I wanted to create this, this platform was, uh, for people like my, my son and daughter who they're young. I mean, they're eight and six, but you know, when they're, 13 14 years old and um they may they may have some interest in it um just creating a real easy platform for learning and and because right now i mean there's just so much information out there and it's like i don't even know where to start and most people are just trying to pitch their ideas to people and which is fine you know if if you're if if you're in the investment research world and and um you have a lot of uh, information to, to provide and offer to the world. I think it's great. But, a, uh, you know, a lot of the sites like Motley Fool and stuff, they tend to be biased, opinionated articles. And mm. so I, I really want to create a resource that's uh, pretty unbiased. Um, and it's more just focused on like the fundamentals and, and technicals of investing from a variety of people. Um, and, and so my my goal with this I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm actually considering like taking a couple of years off of investing and, and really focusing on this, this particular idea, as well as the, um, the desk riser idea that I have, or the business that I have, and just taking a break and, and really, cause, um, I haven't had the level of success with businesses I had as I have with, with investing yet. And I feel like it would be probably more rewarding to, to create something and, and have it like a thriving business and community. And I feel like I would get a little more fulfillment out of that. So that's kind of like my next step I'm thinking about, but the market's been so good this year. It's like, it's just been so volatile and it's just great for somebody that's a trader. Um, it's hard to step away right now, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But I also think that, um, you know, there's this saying that after you have achieved certain wealth, any additional wealth will not kind of give you that extra level of happiness, but maybe just the satisfaction that you sort of saw the trend and you got it right. And I think probably, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's really wanting to build something that kind of gives back to more people, you know, creating jobs, having satisfaction in your product that is really uh, motivational, right? So we just circle back to one strategy that it kind of came to my mind, but I did not ask you early on, right? Because since I think you also talk about having a core positions, also having a trading positions. So what are some, what was your uh, sell discipline? Like what are moments where you think, okay, this is a sell to me right now? Yeah, that's always tricky. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes, well, so I have I have specific rules now that I, I didn't have before when when stocks start going, when stocks start, you know, appreciating, I will scale out of positions almost no matter what, but at uh, 20 to 25%, I'll start scaling a little bit out. That's just a, a rule that I started creating. Cause I, if it's, if it's a, if it's a position that I, I know, like I don't have conviction in holding it for a longer period of time, that's a, a hard rule that I have. 
and then I also have a hard rule if it's kind of like a, a stop limit where it's not a, a firm stop limit, but generally if I'm down 10% or so and I don't have conviction in the position, I'll just cut it. I'll cut it loose. So that's, those are kind of my sell rules. Um, but it, it really varies, you know, like for INS, which is the, I think the stock that we were, we first got in together and I first met you through that it was, you know, that that's initial short report, the stock went up, I think it was like 60% within two weeks. And I started scaling out a little bit. And then, you know, that short report came out. And so I just cut, I cut my losses at a certain point, because I just don't know, you, you don't know how far down it can go. You really don't know. I mean, you think you know everything you do about a company, but there may be th things that you just don't uncover in your research. And, you know, if a stock goes to zero, um, and you're holding on, like, it's, it's hard to recoup that mental loss. And for me, it's all about, you know, keeping your mental cap, your, your mental capital in place and, and being able to be aggressive um, throughout, you know, gyrations in, in the market. And so for me, it's, it's sticking to like, certain rules with, you know, gains, um, and, and positions going against me. If I stick to those rules that I know, generally speaking, I've done the research in advance and I know, you know, that I'll be able to get out and, and my frame of mind won't be all shot and, you know, at a point where I'm not looking for opportunities and instead I'm just focusing on losses. Yeah, that's true. Right? So yeah, for me, it's, it, it really is all about preserving, um, preserving your psychology. And, and I, I just think psychology is a huge part of investing and like, always, always being aggressive and looking for good opportunities. Um, it's really hard to do that when you're constantly losing money and, you know, you're just digging a hole. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Because I think very often we say, hey, you know, we are probably okay with a 20%, 30% downturn. But when you're there, the entire psychology is different, right? Yeah. And it just sometimes cannot comprehend. And, and sometimes what it does to you you know, you freeze up, you paralyze, you kind of lose your ages, you kind of lose your, your intuition, your gut feel, it, it kind of destroys a lot of things. So I think there's, there's no really some strategy to deal with that. But I think the best strategy is kind of like, avoid it. You know, that, that's how I, how I think about it, you know. So I guess you talk about psychology, talk about your, your, your trading strategies, your processes as, as well. You know, maybe in general, if, if an investor wants to get better in, in the performance that they do, do you have any advice for the listeners? The I think the first thing you have to do is, I think you have to determine if you, if you have a passion for investing and you want to learn, you, you want to, if, if you want to spend your time learning and trying to, to outperform the market. I know a lot of people that are very successful um, outside of investing and they could care less about investing and they just, they give it to an investment manager and they're like, just you tell, tell me if I'm up or down, you know what I mean? Which is fine. That's great. You know, if, if you, if you have an awareness of like, that's, that's what you, you want to, you know, focus on other things in life. And um, I think so that I think that's step one is, is knowing if you have that passion. Um, step two, for me, at least I think is understanding um, uh, your, your willingness to, to take losses, how, how you are psychologically, uh, um, and your, your willingness to take risk. If you're, if you're risk averse, um, you probably want to learn more about how to position, uh, your portfolio with more holdings, 
um, and, and diversifying a little more. Um, if you're a gambler and you know, you want to go all in on stocks and, and you understand that, but you're also willing to learn as much as you can, um, then that's great. And, and having a concentrated portfolio is, is perfect, I think. Um, so yeah, I think understanding your passion level and, and psychology is uh, the two most important things starting out, I think. All right. So with that obviously like fundamental, I think, I think knowing, knowing accounting and stuff and, and knowing how to read financial statements, that's, that's crucial. So with that, right. How can investors find out more about you? Um, <laughs> well, you can go to hidden small caps on, uh, on Twitter and then um, compass capital on stock twits. All right. So Michael, with that, uh, we have come to the time and I just want to thank you so much for, you know, dropping so many good insights from your, your sort of experience. And still, I think the story of how you were self-taught, self-made and became a millionaire and even scaling your wealth. And obviously there's a lot of strategies that you have done, which have been really successful. I just want to thank your time and also for delivering your unique insights to our listeners. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Kelvin. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tavesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.